This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Since our nation's founding, eight men have succeeded to the presidency without being elected to it. Only four of those men were re-elected, and only one of them, Theodore Roosevelt, would have been elected in his own right. Yet each of these men, in one way or another, vastly changed our history, for better or for worse. A new book called Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, explores the legacy of those vice presidents who made it to the highest office in the land only because their predecessors died, and the power and limits of the American presidency in critical times. Today, the author, Jared Cohen, comes on the podcast to talk about it. He reveals that presidential succession wasn't clearly defined for most of America's history, and for the first few decades, it wasn't even established if the vice president automatically became president or simply acted as a placeholder. He says most vice presidents were elevated to the Oval Office with great reluctance and a serious inferiority complex, with the notable exception of Teddy Roosevelt, who could hardly contain his glee. We talk about the best and worst accidental presidents, the one who assumed office with the heaviest burden and the least preparation, and the one who was actually accused of conspiring to murder his predecessor. And no, I'm not talking about Lyndon Johnson. We also get into the near misses, close calls, and the VPs who were almost made president. Plus, Jared suggests a better way to choose a running mate. He talks about his childhood fascination with the JFK conspiracy and his unique hobby— collecting presidential hair. Coming up with Jared Cohen in just a moment. Jared Cohen is the founder and the CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet Inc. Previously, he ran Google Ideas at Google and served as chief advisor to Google's executive chairman, Eric Schmidt. From 2006 to 2010, he served as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a close advisor to Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. He's been named to Time Magazine's most influential list and foreign policy's top 100 global thinkers. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The New Digital Age, Children of Jihad, and 100 Days of Silence, America, and the Rwanda Genocide. Now he's written a fourth book titled Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. Jared Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I just had your former boss, Eric Schmidt, on the show, I I guess a couple of weeks ago for his new book, Trillion Dollar Coach, about Coach Bill Campbell. Uh, I'm just curious, before we get to your book, you've been at Google for a number of years. Did you ever have much experience with Coach Campbell? I had a lot of indirect experience with Coach Campbell just because he was such a seminal figure in Eric's life, and Eric has been such a seminal figure in my life. And so oftentimes, you know, I would ask Eric for advice on things and he he would say, here's what I would do, but I'm going to ask Bill and, and check with him. Yeah. And then he would report back to me on what Bill said. Uh, let me ask you this. Do you ever get tired of having to explain to everyone what Alphabet Inc. is? Um, <laughs> do I, people get it by now? You ultimately get used to it. What you realize is there's different yeah. ways to describe it. 
okay. for different audiences, right? So people, so so sometimes you get the complex definition, sometimes you get the oversimplistic definition, <laughs> and you kind of roll with it. Yeah, <laughs> you just say it's basically Google. Yeah. <laughs> well, I enjoyed your new book, Accidental Presidents, and many people will read the timing of this book as a commentary on President Trump. And certainly there's been a great amount of talk of presidential succession with the specter of impeachment hanging over him, people questioning his mental fitness for office, and also just the fact that he is one of the oldest presidents, and from looking at him, not in particularly good shape. Were any of these factors in writing this book? So it is absolutely true that at this moment in time, I think Americans are captivated by questions related to power of the presidency. There is a hyper fixation on presidential succession, impeachment. And it's true. We are in the longest period of time without a president dying in office. Yeah. We have the oldest president in the history of the republic. And the top two contenders on the Democratic side, at least according to the latest polls, are both in their 70s. Um, what's interesting is my book was not triggered by this current moment. My book was triggered by an eight-year-old's interest in the president of the United States. So my parents, when I was eight years old, they bought me a children's book, one of those rhyming books designed to turn me into a precocious child. And I fixated <laughs> on death. And my poor parents, they didn't even know who William McKinley was, let alone having to explain to me why his head was keeled over with blood dripping down it. So this was sort of a lifelong interest. And as I got older, it got a little more intellectual than uh -huh. you know, mom, dad, what is death, and so forth. And it's this amazing story from 1841 to 1963, the president of the United States died in office almost every every 10 to 20 years. It's an extraordinary tale of how these men who were not the voters' choice, who were ostracized from the administration, who had radically different views from their predecessors, ended up being thrust into the pinnacle of power at some of the most important moments in our republic's history. And I understand that a lot of this also goes back to a childhood obsession with the JFK conspiracy, huh? When uh, I remember when Oliver Stone came out with this film, I can't remember oh, yeah. if it was 1992 or 1994, yeah. and I actually just rewatched it on the on the plane on the way on the way here. I got nostalgic yeah. with Kevin I, Costner doing his New Orleans accent. Yes. I decided to annex one of the rooms in our yeah. house, and I turned it into the Kennedy room, and I declared that I was going to solve the Kennedy assassination. And it was cute until I was annoying about it. Yeah. So anyway, throughout my entire life, um, I was fascinated by all different aspects of the presidency. But because of this book as a kid, it was always about the ones who died in yeah. office. And what I find interesting is it's a very relatable topic, not just because of the current zeitgeist, but every American has some familiarity with some part of this eight character story. Um, but most Americans are surprised to learn that it happened eight times. So then yeah. I get into the fact that 19 presidents nearly died in office through a range of <laughs> activities that, that are as broad as a suicide bomb attempt, um, you know, uh, presidents being shot at point blank, flung from their carriage, nearly being blown up in ship explosions, and people are just kind of dying to know more. <laughs> yeah, that's worse than 50-50 odds. Being president is not good for your health, huh? Well, at least for this particular, so the longest, before the period that we're in right now, the longest period of uh, sustained life mm -hmm. uh, for, for the president <laughs> of the United States was George Washington to William Henry Harrison. So it was this, the, 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 the period in which the president died every 10 to 20 years was bookended by these lengthy periods where it didn't happen. Did you ever figure out who killed JFK? Um, yeah, I went through, I, I would say that when I was younger, my conspiracy theories ran a little bit wilder. And as I've matured in my old age, being all of 37, um, I've netted out at feeling like it probably was Oswald acting a little. Oh, yeah? Not Lyndon Johnson? 
Uh, his no. accidental president? No, and what's interesting, <laughs> there everybody... There were rumors. When, so when JFK yeah. was assassinated, there were all these rumors about you know JFK having been you know secretly complicit and so forth. This is not the first time that the vice president has been accused of being complicit oh, in really? the murder I, of the that president. That was going to be my next so, question. Uh, so, so we have to go back to James Garfield, uh, who I, by the way, think is the most remarkable man ever to be elected president of the United States, so much so that my youngest daughter's middle name is Garfield. <laughs> Um, really? So Garfield is the only man ever to be nominated for the party and win the presidency without seeking it out. So huh. in 1880 at the Republican convention, it was supposed to be between Ulysses S. Grant going for a non-consecutive third term and James Blaine. And the delegates got tired of it. And on the 34th ballot, someone shouted out Garfield's name. And before he knew it, he was the Republican nominee. And he got up on stage and he said, I protest a man who does not seek the nomination cannot be given the nomination. And they give it to him anyway. And so uh, Roscoe Conkling, who's this larger than life oh, yeah, New York boss. party boss, yeah. and Chester Arthur, who's like his COO little stooge, um, <laughs> you know, end up spending the entire time subverting uh, Garfield's candidacy for the presidency, even though Arthur is the running mate. And then when Garfield is shot four months into office, the assassin who's a mentally ill office seeker names Chester Arthur as the beneficiary of the assassination. It turned out Arthur had met with him a couple of times. Oh, wow. So Arthur, <laughs> while Garfield is on his deathbed for about 80 days, has to more or less go into hiding because there's angry mobs you know, <laughs> looking for his head. And he never gets he, he, he desperately tries to get in to see President Garfield on his deathbed. And he says to somebody, I need to get in to see the president to clear my good name. So imagine this, the <laughs> vice president of the United States desperately begging to get in to see the ailing president so that the ailing president dies knowing that the vice president wasn't responsible for it. Yeah. And meanwhile, everyone's probably worried that he's there to finish the job or something. Yes, <laughs> the, take but, a pillow over his head. But the plot, thick, <laughs> the plot thickens on this because we talk so much today about uh, uh, the president trolling, people trolling the president. Mm -hmm. It turns out the very first incident of trolling the president of the United States and eliciting a response also took place in this moment. So really? Chester Arthur, who is this loathsome character who was so vain that he changed his birthday to appear younger, is the embodiment <laughs> of the spoil system, lazy as, as can be, so lazy and so ineffective that his, his advisors walked around with a basket that they called the productivity basket that had lots of important looking documents in it, so it looked like the president was doing something. Um, and he was the embodiment of the spoil system, something that, that Garfield desperately wanted to, to abolish. And then this mentally ill woman, you see a pattern here, who lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, starts snail mail trolling him. These 30 letters <laughs> that tell him he's a despicable man, comparing him to the worst characters of the court of King Henry VIII, but tells him there's still hope for him. You can still be salvaged, Mr. Arthur. Oh my um, God. <laughs> and then he gets in his presidential carriage and he shows up at her house one day. And it's a transformative experience. And he ends up Signing the Pendleton Act, which creates the modern-day civil service and abolishes yeah. the spoil system. For a while, presidential succession was somewhat up for debate, right, as to whether the vice president automatically became the president or whether he just served as acting president. When was that firmly established? So the founding fathers didn't like the idea of a vice president. Um, they didn't want one. They ended up adding it at the last minute as an electoral mechanism because they needed to figure out what to do with the person who got the second largest number of votes. And then when we passed the 12th Amendment, which led um, delegates to cast ballots separately for the, the vice president from the president, it basically rendered that that utility of the VP not, not relevant anymore. Um, so I found this story kind of endlessly frustrating because they gave no thought to presidential succession. So when yeah. 18, in 1841, 
when William Henry Harrison, who's this great Whig general, ends up dying in office 30 days after taking the oath. By the way, he was not killed by pneumonia, as many people um, uh, suspected at the time. It was revealed 150 years later that he died from ingesting excrement um, that was in the water due to bad yeah. sewage around the White House, which was responsible yeah. for there killing— a couple of cases of that, It I probably think, right? killed James Polk, and yeah. it probably killed Zachary Taylor. But I digress. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so imagine the scenario. So— he gives the longest inaugural address in history. It's an hour and 40 minutes. After the inaugural address, John Tyler, who is thrown on the ticket to win Virginia, which they ended up losing, skips town and plans to spend his entire four years as vice president you know, at his home in Virginia being completely irrelevant. So then imagine everyone's surprised when Harrison drops dead 30 days later. Tyler knows that the Constitution is truly vague on whether or not the, pre- the vice president becomes president or just discharges the duties as president. And if you read the language, it biases much more towards the idea that the vice president is an acting president who just fulfills the, 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 the duties. Uh, Tyler knows this. He comes back through a combination of boat, train, and horse-drawn carriage and is ready for a fight with the cabinet and with Congress. He spends his first three and a half uh, months po- after Harrison's death asserting his right to be the president, not just Mm -hmm. act as president. He ends up winning that battle, but ends up with a sort of disastrous political outcome. The the Whigs end up formally kicking him out of the party, so he becomes a president without a party. He's the first president to have impeachment proceedings brought against him. There's brawls in Congress over his policies. And then he's left, you know, trying to aspire to win the election in his own right in 1844. And since we look at presidential impulsiveness in contemporary times, it's worth reflecting that in 1844, presidential impulsive behavior led him to, in a moment of political rage, covertly annex Texas and precipitate war with Mexico. <laughs> now, what would be the distinction between an acting president and being president? Were there certain powers that he wouldn't have? Could he not appoint his own cabinet? Was he kind of stuck with the, the previous cabinet? How does so, that work? So it's a great question. I looked at this in the context of Tyler's thinking in two ways. There, there were two issues. One, um, the Constitution indicated that if there's an acting president, the secretary of state should call a special election for the following November. And given this was the first, given this was just 30 days into the new term, the implications of that would have been profound. The second implication is it's much different being the president running for election in your own right, as opposed to being acting president. Now, the reason this story is so interesting is John Tyler sets a precedent in 1841 that when the president dies in office, the vice president becomes president. And it was messy and it was complicated, but that precedent held and it was never debated again. But seven presidents became president upon the death of their predecessor by virtue of that precedent. So we forget Lyndon Johnson becomes president based on a precedent set by John Tyler in 1841. You don't have this formalized with the 25th Amendment until 1967. And by the way, this is important because there's no provision for replacing the vice president of the United States until you have that amendment. Wow. Your love of James Garfield notwithstanding, it sounds like the VPs of the 19th century were pretty unremarkable lot. Uh, Before Teddy Roosevelt were there any who really stood out or left their mark on the office in a good way? <laughs> uh, no, not really. And the most disastrous of them was also our most disastrous president, Andrew Johnson, right? So, so yeah. you know, vice presidents historically have been thrown on the ticket to win a state, appease a constituency, or in the case of Teddy Roosevelt, as a punishment because the political bosses of New York wanted to exile him to the political equivalent of Elba. But by far, the vice president who has the worst debut is Andrew Johnson. He delivers his vice presidential oath of office completely hammered. 
Um, it's supposed to last about 30 seconds. It turns into a 17-minute diatribe <laughs> in which he insults every member of the cabinet. Yeah. He can't remember the name of the Secretary of Navy and has to stop his his rant to ask somebody. <laughs> Poor Abraham Lincoln's head is buried in his hands. And to break to break the ice, they walk outside and, and Lincoln points out Frederick Douglass, the most famous ex-slave in the country. And Douglas describes this moment in his memoirs, and he said, I looked at the hatred in his eyes as they were glazed over, and I knew two things to be true. One, we were lucky that man wasn't president. Two, he's no friend of my race. Mm. Absolutely the right conclusion to draw, but Douglas didn't realize that Johnson was hammered, so he's literally describing a drunk person. <laughs> yeah. And what's fascinating about this is- Or Donald you know, Trump sober. Yeah, or, or that. <laughs> the so, um, so Johnson is so humiliated by this that he essentially goes into hiding. Um, and then Lincoln is assassinated, um, and Johnson gets sort of woken up in the middle of the night, rushes over to the Peterson home where Lincoln is is laying diagonally on the bed. And everyone knows Johnson's going to be president, but nobody has seen him really since this drunken spectacle where there were calls for his resignation and so forth. So imagine this. Everyone knows he's going to be president. Lincoln is basically dead on the bed, um, and a member of the cabinet approaches Vice President Johnson and says, sir – you're making Mary Todd Lincoln uncomfortable. We're going to have to ask you to leave. <laughs> yeah, that has to be probably my favorite story in the book. Uh, and I wonder, do you think that he ever recovered from that day? Or perhaps it might have been behind some of the animosity toward him when he later became president. Johnson was a very complex figure. And in writing this book, one of the things that I tried to do was act as if I was going to play one of them in a movie. <laughs> so I'd really try to get in their head and so forth. In the case of Andrew Johnson, he's a brilliant choice in the context of 1864 because he's revered in the North and reviled in the South. He was the only Southern senator to stay loyal to the Union. He was a right. war Democrat from a border state, and those were basically extinct. Um, he bravely allowed himself to be deployed to be military governor of Nashville at much risk to his life, many assassination attempts. Um because he believed so much in the Union, he put the fact that he was a slave owner and a racist, you know, from the time he was born to the time he died aside and wanted to break the Confederacy to put the Union back together. So his rhetoric in 1864 was more forward leaning on civil rights than even Abraham Lincoln. There's this great wow. scene where he emancipates the slaves in Nashville and he stands on the steps of the Capitol and the freedmen, so the the ex-slaves who are standing there, declare him the black Moses. And he says, yes, I am your Moses. Um, this is an incredibly <laughs> dramatic scene. And, um, you know, Five weeks or six weeks after Lincoln is assassinated, the Civil War ends, and Johnson, who again is a unionist above everything else, just wants to get it all functioning again. So it's not that he all of a sudden you know doesn't about face; he tactically um, changes around his priorities for a post Civil War context. And mm -hmm. I always say that the story, and I write about this in the book, that the story of civil rights in post Civil War America is very much a story of two presidential assassinations. Lincoln's assassination gave us Andrew Johnson, which gave us segregation. And Garfield's assassination deprived us of the one man who aspired to and was capable of and detached enough from party politics to be able to reverse some of that. There's a recurring theme of VPs who are woefully unprepared for the job and suddenly have sort of this, oh, crap moment when they have to assume the office. And it's funny to me because for all the talk of how the vice presidency was considered to be a political death sentence, whenever VPs have been elevated to the presidency, most of them don't seem very excited about it. Yeah, with one exception, um, and, and I write right. about this in the book, Teddy, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, Roosevelt has this amazing quote he'd yeah. spent his entire life thinking about and fantasizing about being president. 
He says, it's a terrible thing to come into the presidency this way, but it would be far worse to be morbid about it. Um, well, the first thing that I'll say, what I, what's always interesting, the eight times that the president dies in office, with the exception of LBJ, it takes them a while to find the vice president. Really? Um, sometimes, you know, you know, five, six, seven That's hours lapse. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was on top of a mountain. Um, Harry Truman was underground at the Capitol building and um, had, you know, his Secret Service wasn't around. Um, you know, Calvin Coolidge didn't have a phone, so nobody could figure out where he was staying in Vermont. Uh, Chester, you know, Chester Arthur was was on a boat. Um, so 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 nobody could find them. Um <laughs> And it's true. Most of them had never imagined being president again, with the exception of Teddy Roosevelt and LBJ. Um, they never expected to be president. Many of them didn't want to be president. They hadn't thought about it. The one that's remarkable to me is is Harry Truman. Mm -hmm. So Truman is everyone in all the party bosses in the Democratic Party in 1944. They know that you know, FDR is a dying man. And there's a reason why in Accidental Presidents, I spend an entire chapter devoted to just the choice of Harry Truman because I want my readers to understand how reckless a choice it is. Because everybody knew FDR was a dying man, they couldn't fathom the idea of the incumbent vice president, Henry Wallace, becoming president. They thought he was too liberal and they thought he was a Soviet sympathizer, both probably true. Um, so Harry Truman you know, gets thrown on the ticket as an anti-Wallace play. And he's basically a boring provincial machine politician from Missouri who's not particularly mm -hmm. worldly. But as, as soon as they get Wallace off the ticket and get Truman on, nobody thinks about Truman again. So in his 82 <laughs> days as vice president, Truman doesn't get a single intelligence briefing. He's not briefed on the atomic bomb. He's not read into Yalta, doesn't meet a single foreign leader, and only meets FDR twice, at both times pretty superficially. Um, he wakes up on April 12th, 1945, and throughout the course of the day, um, you know, learns that he's president of the United States. Um, at that moment, when he is thrust into the pinnacle of power, he's briefed 30 minutes later on the atomic bomb and has to figure out what to do with this destructive weapon. Um, he has to figure out where all these countries are on a map. The Battle of Okinawa is raging, the fiercest battle of the Pacific. He has to deal with the realities of moving a million men from Europe to the Pacific theater. Stalin's reneging on every one of his promises from Yalta, and he has to do character assessments on men that he's never met before, nor has he spent any time thinking about it. And so I spend a whole separate chapter in the book focused focusing on, you know, what Truman does, you know, after he becomes president and how he catches up because he's an unlikely success. There's never been a man less prepared for a more important moment in our history. And yet he makes some of the most important decisions in the history of the Republic in just his first four months. Yeah, I think you say in the book that he inherited a greater burden and with less preparation than any VP in history. And I think over the years, people have started to reassess his presidency. When he left, I don't think he was very popular, right? Well, and, and I think we have to be fair about why he wasn't popular. So Truman mm. doesn't think he's going to win in 1948. And Not even his wife wanted him to run, right? <laughs> right. And, 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 and the reason – and he gets and, – and Strom Thurmond enters the race, um, to uh, which, which nearly thwarts – uh, Truman's uh, Truman's election prospects in the Chicago Daily Tribune. You know, Prince Dewey defeats Truman. Um, so nobody thought he was going to win. But a lot of his unpopularity in that election came from his decision to desegregate the army, mm -hmm. for which history okay. should look fondly on. Of all the VP selections over the years, his was the one that had the most riding on it because people were very conscious that they weren't picking a vice president. They were really probably picking a president. Considering the importance of it, it's a little surprising that FDR really drew out the process for a while of choosing a VP and he strung the party leaders along and floated all kinds of different names besides Truman and Vice President Wallace. Why did he do that? What's with the games? So there's a chapter in the book called That Damn Mule. 
um, about precisely this. And what I conclude about this, and I think historians are divided, but my argument is FDR didn't care who he ran with as long as the person he ran with could win. Mm -hmm. And he determined that there were three people who fit the bill. Um, Harry Truman, Jim Burns, who was another one of his advisors, and Henry Wallace. Um, and then there were some others who he didn't think he could win with, but you know would be sort of you know appropriate to throw in the mix. FDR was in denial about his health. He wasn't in denial that he was dying. He was in denial about the timeline. He wanted to sort of power through enough to win the war, and his aspiration was to win the war and be elected the first Secretary General of the UN. That was his aspiration. And he was terrified of the idea of becoming a lame duck presidency. Um, and what he was most concerned about is the perception that the party bosses were ordering him around because he thought it would weaken him and he couldn't afford to be seen as weak. And again, there's all sorts of psychological aspects of this because you know he knew he was such a, a sick man. So he's he, what people don't realize about FDR, he was an incredibly manipulative man and not particularly nice. So he would throw he, he, he would basically they, they, they do these kind of power brokers meetings and they would get FDR to agree on something. And then the next day he would throw another name in the mix. And what I think he was trying to do was keep it confusing long enough so that by the time it got to the convention, it was going to be one of three people, all of who were acceptable to him. I think that he had a preference for Henry Wallace, but I think he was happy to run with any of them. Truman, I always felt sorry for, because like you said, he came into office totally unprepared and not a lot of people seem to have had very much faith in him in the beginning. And I can imagine that that's common of a lot of accidental presidents. You know, when no one voted for you, you were really probably in most cases weren't even the second choice. And probably not a lot of people have much confidence in you. Is it common for accidental presidents to come into office with a little bit of an inferiority complex? All, all of them come into to office with an inferiority complex. So one of the themes in in, in each of the eight transitions that I write about is they're all obsessed with the idea of winning election in their own right. Mm -hmm. And it causes them to do things that are drastically different from their predecessor. It causes them to to really miscalculate and overestimate. The first four failed to win election in their own right. And then the last four won election in their own right. So Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, then uh, Calvin Coolidge, then Harry Truman, then, then LBJ. Um, so it, it's interesting to see the, how the decisions that they make are guided by winning an election in their own right. The one who, in some respects, proved to be the savviest, besides Teddy Roosevelt, who by all accounts was crazy. And by the way, <laughs> I should say, after writing this book, I've determined that two things are true about Teddy Roosevelt. One, he would have rivaled Donald Trump on social media. Um, <laughs> and two, we should thank the heavens that he didn't preside over a war as president. Yeah. Um, the man loved war. Uh, yeah. he, he was. He would not, <laughs> if, if he was president in 2019, the perceptions of him would be very yeah. different. And I think he used to bemoan the fact that he wasn't a wartime president, well, <laughs> saying Roosevelt, I would have been one of the greatest presidents in history if only I'd had a war. <laughs> I think it's accurate to say Teddy Roosevelt lusted after war. Yeah. And, and when he finally gets his chance to storm San Juan Hill in Cuba, you read the Medal of Honor recommendations, most of which he engineered, and they describe a <laughs> they literally describe like a crazy man, um, not a heroic man. Um, but the one who was the most savvy w w was Calvin Coolidge. And and this is perhaps the most Close prescriptive. Cal. Well, this is perhaps the most prescriptive for today. So Hard the Harding administration was the most scandalous administration 
in history. Um, you had the Teapot Dome scandal, which was a massive oil scandal, a huge scandal at the Veterans Bureau, and then an attorney general who was complicit in everything from fight fixing, bootlegging, <laughs> stock manipulation. They were like really shady suicides and murders in and around his circle. Um, you know, they had these massive underground parties. They would bury bulk cash in backyard. I mean, it was a shady, <laughs> shady attorney general, bad wow. attorney general. Um, and Harding, when Harding dies out west, he basically is worn down by the men in his cabinet who just, you know, came to Washington as the Ohio gang and rode the the, the Harding name and just overwhelmed him with corruption. So, you know, Alice uh, Longworth Roosevelt, the 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 um, somewhat estranged and and social daughter of Teddy Roosevelt, said it best about Warren Harding. She said, "Harding's not a bad man; he's just a slob," um, and that and that's pretty accurate. So Coolidge, so but Harding dies an enormously popular man because none of these scandals. Have have broken yet, mm-hmm. and Coolidge is close enough to the administration to know that you know the the the, the clouds are are rumbling, and he's in for a rude awakening. Coolidge is the only one of the vice presidents to inherit the presidency uh, with less than a year to go before a presidential election. So he has to figure out when the scandals break, how does it not destroy the Republican Party and its prospects in 1924? So Coolidge has this incredibly self-reflective moment where he says, "I'm a pretty boring guy." I'm a non-entity. I'm not interesting. I can make something of that. And there's this great story of him as vice president where he's at the Willard Hotel and the hotel's on fire and they have to eva- they're ordered to evacuate. And he says, but I'm the vice president. Um, and they say, OK, you can stay. And then the guy turns around and says, the vice president of what? He says, the United States. And he says, oh, you have to evacuate, sir. I thought you were the vice president of the hotel. Uh, so Calvin Coolidge, recognizing that everybody thinks he's boring, everybody thinks he's a non-entity, decides to double down on that image. And he cultivates this image of, uh, of silence. Silent Cal, mm-hmm. a man so quiet, so insignificant that he couldn't possibly have been complicit in any of the scandals. So when the scandals break three months into his presidency, nobody would dare saddle Calvin Coolidge <laughs> with any of it because, again, he was so boring. <laughs> so do you think people underestimated him? Would, would you say that he was a decent president? Um, I would say he at best was average. I would mm-hmm. say he was he was more politically savvy than people give him credit for because while he was cultivating this image of a man too silent and boring to have been complicit in his predecessor's mess, he was pioneering broadcast radio and engaging in ways that no president had mm-hmm. ever engaged before in history. He's kind of the, the presidential father of mass media. Isn't that, isn't that ironic that a man yeah. known for being quiet and ins- insignificant was more verbose um, to the average American than any president up <laughs> until that up until that time. Um, the lesson for today is, I in, while that was savvy, the economy was booming, and I think it's clear that Americans didn't care if the president was Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, or Herbert mm-hmm. Hoover, as long as they had their Eskimo pies, their consumer products, their broadcast radio, their you know fun tabloids. I mean, this was just this was an era of mass market, um, and that ends up overshadowing scandal and characters. And, you know, the the leader, you know, from Harding to Coolidge, they they basically step back and let the good times roll. We covered the worst of the accidental presidents. Uh, who would you say was the best? Well, I think I, I still think that Harry Truman was the best because okay. he was so unexpected. And, and so I spend my time in one of the chapters trying to figure out what was it about Harry Truman that made him successful, whereas Lyndon Johnson's record was more mixed. In the case of Harry Truman, it was a combination of two things. He inherited men like Dean Acheson and George Marshall, who made a very quick determination that the future of the world rested on whether or not Harry Truman was successful. And 
it also, you know, so 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 they they made the decision that they were going to rather than you know spend their time subverting him and missing the great FDR, they were going to embrace the idea of Truman as president, and that's very important. Lyndon Johnson never had that yeah. warm embrace <laughs> from the Kennedy advisors, yeah. who he nicknamed the Harvards and should have gotten rid of. Um, but Harry Truman should also be given some credit because it takes a lot to listen, mm-hmm. right? A lot of these accidental presidents they come in and they're deeply skeptical of their predecessors' people uh, because their predecessors' people miss the man who died um, and they're worried about their careers. So some like Millard Fillmore take the oath of office and then sack the entire cabinet. Um, So Truman had the savvy to know when to listen to them. So when they told him, let General MacArthur deal with Japan and deal with Asia, um, as it pertains to the post-war order, you focus on Europe. Um, And he listened to them. Um, But he was also a decisive man. He knew when to break with them and he knew when to debate them because they're all pushing their own agendas. Um, LBJ was was plagued by knowing exactly what to do on the domestic front and was determined to be a great domestic president. But he was really out of his lane on foreign policy. And he didn't have the same level of courage uh, on foreign policy that they demonstrated on domestic Mm -hmm. policy. And so that meant allowing these men to take him down the rabbit hole. And in writing the book, I would listen to these LBJ tapes at night. And they're frustrating because here's a man, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows he's plundering the country into disaster and he can't muster the strength to do something about it. Yeah. And one thing that I don't think I had heard prior to this book is you discuss how Johnson wanted to go to Vietnam and finish it up sooner than later rather than get in a protracted war. And he thought if he went sooner than later, he could get that over with and focus on the rest of his agenda and his legacy. Yeah, I mean, look, one of, one of the more controversial things that I write about in the book that that people take some people take issue with, but I feel very strongly about is the the narrative on the Kennedy to Johnson transition typically goes something like this: If Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, we wouldn't have gotten civil rights, but we also wouldn't have gotten Vietnam. Mm. I don't think that's right. I think the guardians of Kennedy's reputation, Schlesinger, you know, Sorensen, I think that they have saddled. LBJ with the full burden of Vietnam, and he certainly deserves to be saddled with a lot of the blame, but they have absolved JFK of responsibility. It's Kennedy who doubles the foreign assistance budget. It's Kennedy who doubles the number of advisors. It's Kennedy who backs the coup of South Vietnamese President Diem. And it's the, you know, it's Kennedy who, you know, you know, um, you know, takes us down that slippery slope. Johnson, you know, you know, was picking up on a, a, a momentum that Kennedy left behind. And he had the same anxieties that Kennedy had, which is we can't afford to lose Vietnam on our watch. Um, now, I don't think Kennedy was as predisposed to escalate to 500,000 troops, but he absolutely could have gone down the same slippery slope as Johnson. And we were just talking about how Johnson was saddled with all these Kennedy men. And in the book, you describe him complaining about being surrounded by all these blue bloods who weren't loyal to Johnson and didn't believe in him and probably thought that they were smarter than him. And maybe they were, at least on foreign policy. Why did he keep them around? Why didn't he just clean house? He, I mean, this is this is the folly of, of LBJ. This is where, you know, this is an area where he deserves a lot of critique. He couldn't figure out how to think about these sort of Harvard intellectuals. On the one hand, he hated them, um, and and he thought they looked down on him and talked about him behind his back, which of course they did. But then he also kind of worshipped and emulated them. So there's these great stories about how he would go similar to Nixon. Yeah, he 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 lo- <laughs> he, he was so impressed by Robert yeah. McNamara, who was a real brainiac, and he once described how he could literally imagine the keys typing, you know, in McNamara's head. And he used to go to restaurants and copy the way that McNamara would order his meals. <laughs> and <laughs> really? my favorite one of the fa- my favorite things that I write about in 
in the chapter on Kennedy and, and Johnson, which is called The Last Time, um, is when he decides, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna get me my own intellectuals. So he literally <laughs> goes to his his one of his advisors that he brought over from the Senate and he says, you know, get me my own Harvard. Um, so they're like scrambling to figure out one of them knows a guy who was his professor at Princeton <laughs> and they basically rent that intellectual and they try to build this, you know, this, this, this circle of random Johnson intellectuals and, and, and they, they start having these meetings, but then the intellectuals don't show up and there's no mandate and it's just kind of an embarrassing disaster. Well, we are now, as you mentioned at the outset in the longest period in history of not losing a president in office. Uh, what do we attribute that to? The Secret Service, better health care, what? I think we attribute it to luck. Okay, and, and I don't, I don't <laughs> really? think we should. I don't think Just we should that. look at it as more, more than luck. I mean, you've had oh, a lot that's of a sobering assessment. No, but you've had a lot of close calls. So if we yeah. look at, you know, since Kennedy was assassinated, um, Gerald Ford was shot at twice in thirty-five days. Um, you know, you had Reagan who actually was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, George W. Bush had a live grenade thrown at him that, that malfunctioned and right. ricocheted off of a woman's head, which slowed right. down his trajectory. So I think the. The story of these close calls, I think, is is a missing chapter of our history, and this is one of the areas where I got so frustrated in the book. So, so you know, the first close call is James Madison, who was one of the principal architects of the Constitution, and he's basically on his deathbed. And Dolly Madison writes a letter to the Senate because they're beginning proceedings to figure out what to do, saying her husband has made a miraculous recovery, which he eventually makes, but it was an exaggeration. Nobody bothers to ask Madison. Um, the, the following question, which is when you wrote the Constitution, um, did you mean the vice president <laughs> becomes president or is just acting president? Fine, <laughs> we'll, give, we'll give him a pass on that. But then Andrew Jackson is shot at point blank by a man who thinks he's the king of England, uh, realizes he hasn't been shot, proceeds to beat the assailant with his cane. The founding fathers are still alive. So go ask them, had, jo- had Jackson been shot and murdered, <laughs> would Martin Van Buren have become the acting president or the president? And nobody bothered to ask. So by the time Harrison croaks 30 days after taking the oath of office in April 1841, the last of the founding fathers has been dead for four years. So nobody has the opportunity to ask them what the heck they were thinking about. Um, the other thing that's amazing is six of the eight accidental presidents themselves nearly died in office. And there's no provision for replacing the vice president of the United States until 1967. So, so, so imagine wow. that. So, 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 um, you know, John Tyler, who's the nation's first accidental president, is on a ship in 1844 called the USS Princeton, and they're sailing down the Potomac to celebrate American naval prowess. And as they go by Mount Vernon, they fire this state-of-the-art gun called the Peacemaker um, in tribute to George Washington. The gun explodes, and it kills half the cabinet. Um, it kills the Secretary <laughs> wow. of State. It kills the Secretary of the Navy. It kills several ministers. It kills the president's favorite slave. And it would have killed John Tyler had he not been down below deck flirting with a young woman who was more <laughs> interested in the captain's son. So they come above deck, and she faints in his arms when she realizes among the dead are her father, who's a New York State senator. She nearly kills them when she's startled and awakens as he's holding her and carrying her down the gangplank, nearly knocking them over to their death. Um, but had Tyler been killed in this moment, as you know, given the fight over whether he was president, I don't think the the Tyler precedent would have sustained. And then maybe really? you wouldn't have had, you know, Andrew Johnson. So then maybe you wouldn't have had segregation. Maybe you wouldn't huh. have had Teddy Roosevelt. Maybe you wouldn't have had LBJ. I mean, our history would have been drastically would have been drastically different. And then wow. the the two close calls that I think are most interesting um, are one is about a woman in her purse who saved FDR and the New Deal. 
when FDR was president-elect in Miami, uh, giving a speech before taking the inauguration, the oath of office, um, an Italian immigrant named Giuseppe Zangara fired five shots in 15 seconds at him. Um, and a 100-pound woman named Lillian Cross was standing next to the assassin and saw him pull his 32 caliber, moved her purse from one arm to the other, smacked his arm, thwarted his <laughs> aim. It killed four people, including the mayor of Chicago who was visiting, but it spared FDR and saved the New Deal. Um, and then... <laughs> JFK, who obviously was assassinated in 1963, people don't realize he was nearly killed by a suicide bomber as president-elect. Yeah, that was interesting. A disgruntled postal worker named Richard Pavlik stuffed his pants with enough dynamite to blow up an entire church and gets within four <laughs> feet of JFK wow. as president-elect. The has original his, underwear bomber. Exactly. Has his <laughs> hand in his pocket on the trigger ready to pull it and then catches a glimpse of some children and decides he'll do it the next day. I mean, you have to wonder, I guess, you know, when you look at all these uh, near misses and close calls, which one would have been the most disastrous one? In other words, which near miss do you think, wow, thank God that didn't happen and we ended up with that VP in the office? Um, I mean, the most the most out of the close calls, I mean, I think the one that would have been the biggest deal would have been FDR. Mm -hmm. um, had, be, had he been killed as president elect? Um, you would have had John Nance Garner, who said the vice presidency is not worth a warm bucket of piss as president of the United States. But I don't know that you would have had the New Deal. I don't know how Garner would have handled World War II. There's a lot of what ifs. I mean, FDR mm -hmm. was a was a was a unique figure in a, in our history. What's interesting is nine days before that near uh, that that near assassination of President Elect Roosevelt, the country passed the Twentieth Amendment, which says that if there's a vacancy in the president elect, the vice president elect becomes president on inauguration day. But there's a twist because the inauguration uh, was still on uh, the inauguration still took place on um, uh, on March 4th at that time. Um, uh, so it, it's so, so it's there a, would be it's a, a gap. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so you would have had a gap. So yeah. it's 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 the, these sort of counterfactuals are quite interesting. Now, you take on how modern day candidates select a VP. Are they more chosen these days for what they bring to the ticket as a running mate than what they might bring to the administration as a VP? So one of the things I write about in an afterword in, in the book is how we've learned absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So eight presidents dead, another 19, you know, nearly dead. And as recently as 2008, you have a man in his 70s picking Sarah Palin as the as his running mate. Yeah. You know, we're still first of all, I don't think candidates should have total autonomy in picking the person who's going to be a heartbeat Really? Away from the the presidency, it, really, it's, even though they're the one who has to deal with them. But if historically, that historically that's not how it's how it's been done. Well, that's and true. Yeah, it, it's also it shouldn't be an appointment, right? I mean, the vice president is elected again mm -hmm. by, going by the twelfth amendment. The delegates cast one vote for the president and one vote uh, for the vice president, right? Which is why it's such it, 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 and and so the, the candidate, so long as they can choose, is always going to bias towards what state they need and what bump they need in the polls at that particular time because they're against the ropes and the only thing that matters right. is the electoral advantage and winning. Um, there's no evidence that imagining what this person would be like as president really factors into it. And if you're a, if you're the top of the ticket, so if you're the the candidate for president, you're not incentivized to pick somebody extraordinary lest they outshine you. And um yeah. and yeah. you know and you're not so 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 there's a reason why you get a bunch of boring you know, men and, you know, you know, and some women as the vice presidential nominees because the candidates don't want to be overshadowed. So as long as the right. vice president is quiet and boring and doesn't embarrass <laughs> you and doesn't overshadow you, yeah, from an electoral first do purpose, no harm, you're safe. Right? Yeah. So, we, so what we, would be a better way? I think so. A better way to do it is I think I mean, historically, the party has chosen 
who the VP was, but the VP, I think we have a better understanding, at least now, um, of this sort of heartbeat away from the presidency concept. And I think that the party should make a decision about who they want to lead should the unthinkable happen. And and you don't have to pass an amendment. You don't have to pass a law. This is a simple change in rules and party norms and a decision to go back to the way things used to be done. It's not until 1960 that the candidate sort of takes over the process. Mm-hmm. So when you say the party chooses the vice president, does that mean that they vote on it the same way that they would on the presidential nominee? I think there's or there's how? any number. So one delegates way to, there's a couple ways to how? do it. You could imagine creating a super delegate model where you have certain delegates that are empowered to be part of a, a VP search committee, mm-hmm. um, and and their their vote gets special weight um, to try to. So so you have a combination of, of will of the delegates um, and anointed super delegates who represent the different factions of a of a party. I think that would be one healthy way to do it. And I think this election, by the way, on the Democratic side is not a bad time to try this. Another way to think about it is you can really? imagine the party saying, you know what, we don't want somebody to be a heartbeat away from the presidency who hasn't interviewed for the job. Mm-hmm. So if you have 25 candidates running for office, why not say um, – you know, we're going to we're going to sort of establish a norm, at least in the 2020 election, and say that the only people who will be eligible to be vice president are people who have themselves run for president in 2020 so that huh. we can see them interview for the job on the public stage. Interesting. Well, the, then I'm trying to think who would be disqualified in the past by that rule, because well, you are limiting your pool then. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you had I mean, if, if you look at the last I mean, Tim Kaine didn't run for true. You know, yeah. Didn't run um, Cheney. Yeah, Cheney, Cheney didn't run, so um, so you do have um, you have a mix, and I think what's the, the, there's another thing that I would change. I we I the Harry Truman example is very scary to me mm-hmm. because now we don't think about it because he ended up being remarkable, but the notion that the country can be at war and the vice president can be totally cut out of the mix is a very dangerous prospect. Yeah. Um, and you know, Truman was nervous about seeking out information lest he be seen as anticipating FDR's death. So I would like to see, and I write about this a little bit in the book, a sort of presidential, some, some, sort, of, some sort of presidential succession act for which we've had many um, that legally empowers the vice president to request intelligence briefings um, and set up a national security team. Hmm. Um, so that the vice president has the legal mandate and legal authority to get themselves read right into yeah. things, even Good in a situation idea. where they're completely ostracized from the administration. Well, then what do you think of Pence's readiness to take over the reins if Trump was impeached or passed away or who knows? Uh, would he be ready to lead on day one, as they say? So the the, the so I define ready to lead as is this somebody that the people have elected? Right. Okay. And like Pence's policies or not, he was a governor of a major state. He was elected vice president. You know, he wasn't this wasn't Gerald Ford being plucked from Michigan's fifth. Um, he was elected vice president. Um, and the most important thing to me when I when I interviewed Dick Cheney for, for, for the book, he said the most important thing for a vice president is that they're ready to read lead on day one. And by all accounts, Pence is as integrated into the foreign domestic policies of the administration as any vice president in history. Um, and that's an important criteria, right? If you don't like the policies, vote them out of office. But if you're talking about presidential readiness, it's about being in the loop. Well, we have another VP who has a pretty decent chance of being president soon. Uh, Joe Biden, what do you think? Pretty much assume that he would be ready to lead on day one, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think we've been lucky with the last several vice presidents. Mm-hmm. So again, if you follow my argument that there's a correlation between readiness and integration into the into the administration. We've been we're lucky in that sense with Pence. We're lucky with Biden. 
Um, you know, we're lucky with Cheney. Uh, again, you may, I'm not making a judgment about policy. I'm making a judgment about readiness to continue government. Um, and I think to some extent we were lucky with Gore. Before that, they were pretty they were pretty, and we were lucky with George H. W. Bush as well. Mm, sure. Um, um, but that's a modern phenomenon. And you know, had John McCain won, how integrated do you think Sarah Palin really would have been in <laughs> yeah. in the administration? Yeah. Well, before we go, I understand that you are a collector of of all things presidential hair. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> Which presidents do you have in your collection? What does your wife think of your hobby? Um, the rule is I'm not allowed to pay money for it. So I buy autographs <laughs> and get the hair thrown in. Um, <laughs> it, it's not as creepy as you think once you see it. Yeah. Um, and so I have uh, I have two locks of George Washington's hair. Oh, really? Um, I have William Henry Harrison's hair. Huh. I have George. Uh, so I, have, I have Ronald Reagan, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, John Adams. Uh, how do and, you even get that? And how do you authenticate oh, something like and that? And I have Abraham Lincoln's hair from the night of his assassination. <laughs> wow. So it turns out it's pretty easy to authenticate because until the 20th century, people didn't ask the president for autographs. They asked them for locks of their hair. So there's really? all these letters with tons of provenance <laughs> where someone writes the president asking for a lock of their hair. The president snips off some hair, attaches it with some wax to the letter, <laughs> and you can you can authenticate the wax residue on the hair, the aging of the wax on the paper, the okay. aging of the paper, and you can wow. triangulate it. Huh. Um, my prized possession is I have a painting painted by Eisenhower while he was president. Oh, really? Of I his didn't chief even know of staff. he painted. Yeah, I, did, I didn't either until I found this painting. It's of his chief of staff's son, and when you're an amateur artist, you paint your own features. So it looks like a baby Eisenhower. <laughs> it, it, like, it, 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 literally, it's a baby, but it has an old, like, old man Eisenhower face. Yeah. Who has the best hair? Um, of any president? Yeah. Um, it's easier to define the worst. I, I think there's nothing okay. that competes with Chester Arthur's mutton chops, which I've never, oh, seen, yeah. on, I've never seen on the market. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, Jared Cohen's book is Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. Jared, thanks for talking with me. Thank it was you. fun. Thanks again to Jared Cohen for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow Jared on Twitter at at Jared Cohen. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestor's journey over time, following how and why your family moved from place to place. Go to Ancestry.com today to purchase your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com to purchase your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News.